that. Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Sean Hendy, physicist from Auckland University, joining us for a science report this week. G'day, Sean. G'day, Graham. Uh, busy time for you at university? Yeah, actually, we're, we're kind of wrapping up the teaching semester, so the second semester. So um, our students are doing exams, oh. so it's a little quieter. The students are a little bit more stressed, and, and we're getting into our marking. Right. So, um, so yeah, a little, little, bit, little bit different on, on campus uh, this week. There's just a little side issue, nothing to do with science at all, I suppose, but I just recall sitting exams at university, and it was always the springtime, and the flowers would be coming out, and the, the days yeah. would be long and warmer. Sparrows would be fighting for nest <laughs> yeah, space. Right. Even the sound of a chip, 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 chip. Yeah. It's delightful every time I hear it because I know I don't actually have to sit an you exam. No longer, this no longer means exams. Because it was yeah, cruel. Yeah. If we could sit exams in July yeah. um, when it's miserable and wintry <laughs> and you feel like, oh, well, that might be a neat thing to stay inside at my desk well, and I, study more, we'd get better results. Well, of course, they are, our students do have to sit their exams in, in June anyway, May, June. Right, right. Um, so there, we do we do put it through, put them through it in winter. Oh. So that's first semester. Um, but yeah, now you know once they once they get through this, yep, um, they're they're all good for a few months. Um, okay, uh, the biggest physics experiment going really yeah. is the Large Hadron Collider. It That's collides right. hadrons. Yep. It's in CERN. Um, I had a chat with Brian Cox a little while ago. Oh, He's yep. got to be on the show in, in a while. He works oh, that'll there. Be, that'll be worth listening to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this new particle apparently discovered, or they've, they've got a blip somewhere. Yeah. So this is, this is that's, you know, CERN, you know, the, the, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, it's kind of been in this very strange phase. I mean, people, you might remember the Higgs, discovery of the Higgs mm. um, uh, six years ago. Um, but that was something we kind of, you know, we thought was there. Mm. It, was, it had actually been predicted in the late 70s, early 80s. So we'd actually spent a lot of time anticipating finding the Higgs. And, and so while we thought when we switched on this Large Hadron Collider, as you said, the biggest, biggest, experiment of any kind. Mm. Um, this is actually the biggest machine we've ever built as, as, as a, a human race. As a human race. Mm. Um, we expected to see the Higgs, but we also expected to see other stuff. Um, you know, there, were, there was something, a, a theory called supersymmetry. Um, this is a theory that kind of tied up our model of particle physics with special relativity. And it, it said that for each of our, each of the particles that we know about, the electron, the, you know, the neutron, there was going to be a supersymmetric partner. And this, this symmetry kind of neatly mathematically solved a whole lot of problems that we have in particle Are physics. Are you talking antimatter? No, so not antimatter, so a different type of symmetry. So, so antimatter is a, is a particular type of symmetry. Um, but this was, a, this was a new type of symmetry that we thought might explain um, some of the things we see in the universe. And much to our embarrassment, we have not seen any supersymmetric particles. What can you tell us what a supersymmetry is then, if it's not antimatter, like a positron so, and so, antipositron? So it's kind of a little bit hard to describe, but it basically, yeah. it basically would be telling, 
it, it would be a type of symmetry that said that if we found an, if there's an electron out there, mm-hmm. there'd be something called uh, a supersymmetric electron, so or a selectron. So it just would it would kind of mathematically neatly explain why we saw the particular types of particles that we do, mm-hmm. um, and and also kind of it, it, it's, it's quite a beautiful mathematical symmetry that that's tied up with special relativity. So if, when you're writing down the equations of particle physics, it seems to be you know it's it, mathematically it's very sexy. So you can't you kind of when you first hear about it as a as a student you're like oh yeah this must be right this is just too beautiful to be wrong mm. only of course you know nature has has other plans we've switched on the large hadron collider and we've not seen any of these supersymmetric particles so you know in some ways you know people have been getting a bit depressed at CERN um, you know they built this big experiment we saw the stuff that we thought we were going to see but we always tell everybody you know when you do an experiment you'll see you'll see new stuff when you look at a new when you open up a new part of the universe we always see new things mm. and actually in this case we've, we've we've struck out and that means there's a whole lot of theorists uh, like me twiddling their thumbs going we you know we, we, we're coming up with theories and 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 making predictions and there doesn't seem to be any evidence of anything going on and of course the experimentalists are working hard with with you know for, for no end yeah. so and hats off to the engineers too who make the freaking to, yeah, thing yeah no absolutely so yeah. there's a whole lot of energy that goes into making the, you know so we definitely we've built it to to find new stuff and, and and it's been disappointing that we haven't anyway so there's a hint there's a hint um that they've started talking about and of course particle physicists are very conservative when it comes to these things they they've been embarrassed before um so certainly people have claimed to have detected things before and and then it turns out to be a statistical blip the machine was having a bad day mm. um something else going on um a spider a spider <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, you know, something something left in the beam line. Mm. Uh, there was a the famous incident where there was a beer bottle. Uh, I think there was at LIGO left in the left in the um, in one of the vacuum chambers. <laughs> You're joking? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. Oh, um, that's but, the, uh, with the people that were trying to find the gra- gravity waves. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that right. did in the end. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, so here's a there's a, there's a new the possible signal that they've detected. They've actually put their paper out. And this is, when, when, when we think of CERN, so think of the Wellington Harbour, um, and, and basically the Large Hadron Collider is a tunnel about the same diameter as the Wellington Harbour. So imagine a kind of a, a train tunnel, large train tunnel running all the way around that harbour. And at, at, at three different corners, or three different parts, so divide your circle up into three, um, three parts, you've got a particular type of detector. And, the, and you've got protons whizzing around, smashing into each other, coming in opposite directions around this ring, mm. and, and, you're, and you're looking for collisions that happen near your detector, and you've got these three different detector sites, and they use slightly different types of, of um, detection technology Can they at each a- of them. aim at all for the detectors, or is it just, let's hope something happens they'll, there? They'll, they'll, just, they'll be trying to arrange to have, um, you know, the way that they collimate the beams to have more collisions, and I, okay. I, I, I think so. I think that's how it works. Um, and so, so you see one, see something in one detector, maybe that detector's having a bad day, maybe there's mm-hmm. something peculiar about what you've done at your site, and so we're at the stage of the uh, people at the other working on the other detectors or other experiments as they call them trying to confirm uh, what this first detector is saying and so if we see it 
at these two different sites, well then game on. I think that would be that would be quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, and so apparently the meetings are going on right now. Um, these groups are getting together to try and decide whether they have actually seen the same thing. So so it's you know we've been wrong. We've been at this point before, and it's turned out to be a bust. Um, but actually quite interesting. And the other interesting thing about this this particle is actually no one's predicted it. <laughs> like it's it's completely it's not one of these supersymmetric particles. It's something it's something sitting in a window where where no one no one anticipated there to be anything there. So none of the theories we have at the moment would tell us what this blip was. Now that's extra interesting if it does come to fruition that yeah. oh, hello did you see it too and they yep. say yes we did yep. um, and so we've got a thing it would be extra cool because there is the criticism I don't know if it's a criticism or a thought that physicists uh, can um, predict particles from their theory and they go look for them and find what they've found yeah <laughs> And, and and it's 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 what funny. they're hoping to see. Yeah, and we've kind of been we actually been in that phase for a while now. I mean, if, if back when Rutherford, you know, our, our Ernest Rutherford was doing his thing, particles were just cropping up all the time. You know, you just you know you turn on, you do your experiment, and you'd see something new. They were they were coming in in a, in a rush, right? He was looking at electrons, alpha, alpha radiation, beta radiation, mapping out. You know, looking at things like neutrons, and 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 we kept going, and we sort of had this beautiful 50, 60 year period where almost everything we saw was unexpected. Like, you know, who ordered that? Um, was yeah. the was the catchphrase? And then in the through the nineteen sixties, we start. You know, it looked like a big mess. People were like, "What on earth is going on? We just we just see particles wherever we look." And in the nineteen sixties and seventies, people actually worked out. They, they basically were able to build the periodic table of particles. And from then on, we were able to look, well, where are the gaps in this periodic table that we've built? This is called the standard model of uh-huh. physics now. Where are the gaps? And when we when we went looking in the gaps, we found the particles. So we've, we've had a period of about 40 years, 40, 50 years of doing exactly what you've said, just filling in the gap. So after a really you know really exciting period from Ernest Rutherford on into the 50s and 60s we were just saying lots of stuff all the time. We figured out the pattern behind that and then for the last 50 years we've just been filling in the dots. Uh-huh. So there's kind of been, you know, it's gone both ways. We've had periods where we were seeing lots of unexpected particles um, and then we've had a long period where just everything was just full like a, you know we're filling in the last pieces of the jigsaw puzzle mm. we still don't know ex- you know there's still lots of questions we have about this particular jigsaw puzzle you know why this jigsaw puzzle and so a lot of the theories um, that people are working on now try to try to say well wh- why this particular arrangement of, of matter you know why why do we sit why do things come in threes mm. um and you know, which that seems to be the the, the pattern. Um, you know, the three types of neutrinos, three flavors of quarks. Mm-hmm. You know, um, every three seems to be the magic number. Um, and so, explaining why that is 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 something we'd love to do. You know, why not why not go to four? Mm. Um, and uh, gosh, the whys can go forever, though, can't they? <laughs> well, we can, yeah. yeah. And 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 they may they may indeed yeah. continue to go. We may never get to the answer, mm. or maybe in some, some physicists would like, you know, to be apparent as to, okay, this is the only way it could be. Right. You know, mathematically. Right. And there are some things in mathematics that work work like that. Hmm. When we we look at at 
mathematical structures, there are sometimes a very small number of, of mathematical objects that can satisfy particular symmetries. And so, you know, so there are suggestions in mathematics that the universe, you know, it's certainly possible that, that there could just be mm. a very small number of ways of producing a universe. Um, or, you know, maybe we'll never know. Um, mm. We'll never find these things. Anyway, so watch this space yeah. and keep your fingers crossed for the folks at CERN. Yeah. Um, because I think, it, you know, they, they, that experiment has cost billions of dollars. <laughs> so we'd like to... F- We'd like to see some stuff that we didn't know was already there. Mr. Higgs is happy. Anyway. Mr. Higgs is he 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 very happy man to eventually have been proved right. Yeah, um, and quite surprised actually. Um, I think in, in in the end, you know, when he did his bit of work, because of course he, the work that Higgs did. It was applied by others to the standard model, so he did the kind of some of the mathematics, and 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 so the Higgs particle is named after him not because he predicted it, because but he came up with the theory that eventually right. led to that predicted to the particle. Right, and I'll try and suggest as simply as possible the Higgs particle. It's the thing that gives us mass. It's, yeah, it's the sticky stuff. Our our matter. It turns it into mass. Yeah, it it it, it breaks. The, so 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 mass breaks as it breaks a particular type of symmetry, and so that particle is associated with that symmetry breaking a particular right. type of phase transition that occurred that gives us mass. Right. Okay. And this particle not predicted. Um, it might have it. Could it be a nostalgitron? <laughs> that that that's particle that goes through you when you uh, have a sort of a, 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 an aching, wanton feel about a similar, um, about familiar places, scenes, or smells. Uh, I, I think it could be a lack of funding a tron. Uh-huh. Um, this is this is this is another feature that's known to occur in um, in big particle physics experiments when the funding's running out. Um, sometimes you discover a particle that requires further investigation. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that that you know, I'm being a bit cynical there, um, but you know that's that's possibly there's part, there's let's just say there's strong motivation for people to find something at the moment. But so they can't combing. They couldn't just make up a blip on no, the graph. No, eventually. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll know for sure, right? Okay. Other people will confirm it or disprove it. So they have to, you know, they don't get to say themselves whether mm. they've discovered a particle. It's really it's really the sci- the, the whole scientific community that will weigh in mm. and decide whether their evidence is good enough or not. Well, it's neat that it's come about, or at least uh, the indications are that it's come from. Oh goodness, over there, where they weren't expecting it. Yeah, so yeah. cool. How did people get to Australia? This it happened a long, long time ago. We know that, but they have to get over the water. I yeah. often think of this and would love to be a fly on the wall, I suppose, yeah. or, or maybe a drone flying over and watching this event happen. Yeah. If it happened once or twice or over a thousand years, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. One of them would do for me because it's an amazing piece of human history. Yeah, and that must have been an amazing journey. I mean, no, you know, no matter how it happened... Um, Quite amazing. I mean, we we you know originated in Africa and, and moved into into Europe and Asia, and then very quickly we pop up in Australia. Um, so some of the oldest archaeological um, remains outside Africa and, mm. and, and Europe you can find uh, of, of of modern humans you can find in Australia. And one of the puzzles is that that you can't find the things in between. Um, so when they go looking on the likely paths that people might have taken, if you look at Indonesia, other parts of Asia, the archaeological finds are younger. So 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 it seems like we made you know a very rapid trip out 
um, uh, to Australia, which is, you know, possibly a very short period of time. And also the other fascinating thing about this is this this would have been our first voyage over open seas. Yeah. Um, no matter what the sea level was over the last 100,000 yep, years, yep. there was always a significant gap. Yep. Not You couldn't wade across. No, no. And, and um, you know, even, even once you'd... You know, you'd mastered building simple boats. Um, probably a lot of the a lot of the journey, you 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 just you saw you could see the landmass you were heading to, right? So you knew there was something at the end of your trip. Aha. Um, and on the Australian journey, you had to set out uh, without being able to see your eventual destination. And so that must have been quite an incredible thing. You, you know, you think of that our other migrations. You you know, we basically did it by walking, mm. or you could take a shortcut by by, you know, boating mm. along the shore, mm. but you could always see land. And at some point, someone said, actually, I reckon there's something out there um, and I'm going to trust my brain rather than my eyes um, and set out and, and navigate my way there. So that yeah. must have been, you know, that's quite a remarkable thing in, in, in terms of the development of our species. Even if you consider early boat building. Oh gosh, this is early. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah. So very early in our, in our history. Anyway, so the, the, the new study, the new bits of evidence has, has been trying to figure out, trying to trying to give us a bit of a hint, where can we, you know, if, um, we can see these old archaeological remains of, of, um, of you know, early sites in Australia, 65,000 years ago. Um, but we're missing the oh. we're missing the intermediate bit, bits. You know, did we? Where do we stop over on the way uh, to oh. Australia? Um, and so, some people have done a calculation. They basically looked at well, what was the what was the sea level, um, and you know, where were the land masses um, sixty five thousand years ago, hundred thousand to sixty five thousand years ago? Can we kind of but look at all the possible routes and then work out the most likely route for people to take? And this might give us some hints as to where to go look oh. for archaeological sites and so some some um, researchers have done that they've, they've kind of done a little travel you know like when you pull up your your um, Google Maps and mm -hmm. it tells you the fastest way to get to a particular destination um, they've done this for for early humans what was the what was the fastest way that minimizes one of the things they looked at is minimizes these open sea crossings where mm -hmm. you can't they still had to do some, um, but let's minimise those things because it's always, you know, we'll assume that it's going to be easier to travel to the next landmass that you can see, even though you're going across water. And they've mapped that route out. Um, and so now that, that that's giving some suggestions as to where you can go look for these these other sites uh, where people might have stopped along the way. Right. And I guess if I guess you know if we didn't if we don't find those sites, then that does point to this very rapid journey. This, this, you know, we just keep going rather than, rather than sort of staying for a few hundred years in a particular region, mm. you know, for, you know, till, till perhaps we'd eaten all the shellfish yeah. or fished out the, um, the river. Um, uh, you know, maybe we did make this very quick trip um, and then settled in Australia. Yeah. Um, there's this, I'm trying to get someone from anthropology somewhere on the planet to yep. talk with me about these people called the Sentinelese. Uh, okay, and they're yep. kind of a bit on the pathway. Yeah. And nobody knows anything about them at all. Right, okay. They are the most isolated human outfit ever. 
you've got, I think, um, the guy from Police, Sting. He might have ruined it in, in Central America, but th- yeah. they, <laughs> I think they've had, you know, two or three visits from anybody anywhere, right. anytime. It's yep. this tiny little island in the Andamans. Right, yep, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, they, the Andamans, you know, very isolated yeah. um, part of the world. Uh, I don't know. There are theories. They are the stay behind us from an Aboriginal thing, but I don't know. Okay. Okay, try, well, that would be an interesting one. Yeah. yeah, but it's, yeah. I, I just find it fascinating that you yeah. know, trying to trying to um, understand our story of, of how we got to particular parts of the world. That's what, yeah. one of the most fascinating areas of science. Yep. Okay, um, Sean, thank you very much, and we'll see you in upcoming weeks. And, and good luck to the soon people with their blip. Yep. And the archaeologists, of course. Thank you. No worries. The weekend variety wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant, very good evening. Hi, Graham. All right, first up, just um, uh, a heads up that we've got some links on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. If you go there and it says click here for this weekend's lineup, at the top ish, you will see. Uh, the astronomy links for this week and the Kepler Space Telescope. Gosh, it's done a lot of work. Why can't they just keep it going? What, what's this we're well, we going to see? Well, basically it's run out of gas. It's, oh. it's just run out of fuel. They drove it till it wouldn't do anything more and <laughs> so now it's just a expensive bit of hardware that can't do anything. But that's... Uh, what was it running on? Diesel? Uh, it's It's got gas uh, little jets for controlling the thrusters and the orientations oh. and so once it can't do that anymore and uh, it's got solar panels for power, but uh, once it can't control its pointing anymore, it's useless. Big decision on where to let it um, stop, because you could always get a picture of something, couldn't you? Uh, Well, I think that, yeah, they have to, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it has to be able to track for long enough to take a picture. If it's just drifting uh, and rotating and you can't control where it's pointing, it's not a lot of use. But um, the interesting thing is it's, 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 it's in an a similar orbit to the Earth, and it's been slowly drifting behind the Earth. So now it's actually right round, it was launched near the Earth, and it's slowly been drifting away from the Earth as we leave it behind. And so it's now there on the other side of the Sun from the Earth. But gradually it's going to drift round again until it comes back in touch. So there's a little animation mm. uh, showing the how that orbit's going to go over the next century. And uh, so it's uh, gradually it'll come back close to the Earth again. Um, it'll be a, a thing that's in you know, quite a long time from now. Mm. Uh, the question is I mean like deca- many decades uh, but the question is in the future whether anyone will be inspired to go out there and capture it and bring it back. Elon Musk for example. Right. Uh, you could imagine that it might be the sort of thing he might attempt um, to bring it back and uh, put it in a museum but uh, yeah. yeah by then you know we might have gone so far that uh, nobody really wants it but if you could get, actually go back in time and get Galileo's original telescope uh, you'd go to some trouble to do it. You sure would. Yeah. And that's also uh, hoping things go swimmingly uh, between now and then as well. <laughs> I'm always afraid. Well, that's right. Well, there are I, dark ages. They've happened before. Yes, I know. I quite, <laughs> quite agree. We, it's a bit hard to project more than a decade or so into yeah. the future at the right at the moment. But so it's done fantastic work. Of course, it was launched to find planets around other stars, but specifically looking for Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars. Yeah. Um, it, 
didn't it sort of did that it found about two and a half thousand planets uh, it identified it was just staring at the same piece of sky taking an image every 30 minutes of those same stars for a long time mm-hmm. um, but eventually uh, one of its its control little control wheels like the Hubble had that trouble um, and uh, get, gradually Kepler lost two and that only left it with two to control and it can't control the pointing of the telescope mm-hmm. to carry out the mission so then it had to change to a, a secondary mission which was to uh, uh, what they could do is keep it pointing in the plane of the Earth's orbit. So they could point at objects that were in that direction, uh, but not above or below the orbit. And so they couldn't uh, continue with the original field. So anyway, it's uh, been... Uh, uh, we, we were actually involved with some projects. We uh, collaboration we were involved with got time on the Kepler to look at things, uh, microlensing events that were um, could be monitored both from Earth and from uh, the distant Kepler space telescope. And then... Mm told us a lot more about them so that was kind of fun nice. so uh, but uh, so it was used for all sorts of other projects um, uh, after its reaction wheels failed and then oh. now that's run out of uh, power or uh, controllability it's uh, kind of gone okay and uh, the story of that the future of the Kepler Space Telescope, uh, one of the links along with new discovery about the history of our galaxy. Uh, yeah, that, that's a uh, an interesting um, story about the, uh, it's using the stuff from the uh, Gaia t- Telescope, mm-hmm. a very interesting interview with a cosmologist and uh, I think she's in Germany, um, or in Europe anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, talking about the, what they've discovered uh, about the, the way in which the Milky Way started. Um, they they're now, because of the results from the Gaia satellite, ESA's um, one that's measuring the, tracking the motions of uh, something over a billion stars mm. um, in three dimensions, it's, it's actually able to reconstruct the history of the solar, of the Milky Way. And they've established that there was a major collision around about 10 billion years ago um, that uh, was sort of the, probably the, uh, a very key element that nobody had known about prior that uh, allowed the Milky Way to develop. Um, and it brought a whole lot of new stars into the Milky Way that uh, weren't there originally, and the Milky Way got a lot bigger, a lot quicker. Uh, so uh, quite an interesting account of uh, this um, uh, woman's um, experience in astronomy, uh, and also that you know she's been uh, very excited to be able to unravel some of these key things on the history of our galaxy. Okay, now these weird asteroids that are hanging about, we got closer and closer to Ryugu, and it turned out to be exactly... Exactly like a flying saucer from the show UFO. Yeah. And well, this is, seems to be a preferred shape. Well, it's just uncanny, really, because, yes, as you say, uh, as they approached uh, the Ryugu, um, the Hayabusa 2 s- Japanese satellite, mm. uh, it was really quite surprising to see what a geometric shape it was. Mm. It wasn't like what anyone was really expecting. Um that's not entirely true because, in fact, astronomers can, you know, without getting close to them, by measuring the light variations of a rotating asteroid, they can actually work out quite a lot about the shape that to expect. Um, they probably just hadn't got enough data on the Ryugu satellite uh, asteroid in order to really nail it down. But now that this, uh, now that uh, they're approaching uh, Bennu with uh, Cyrus Rex and NASA satellite, it's uh, now taken its first pretty clear picture from about 300 kilometres away uh, of the uh, of the of the objective that it's going to get into orbit around. It also has this strange geometric shape. Um, it's about half the size of Ryugu. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it's a, it has quite a lot less mass, um, maybe in sort of an eighth of the si- eighth of the mass. So mm-hmm. it'll be much harder to get into orbit around it because gravity's so weak. But uh, by the end of December, they uh, they expect that uh, the NASA satellite will be actually in orbit, orbiting about 20 kilometres from that little object. Um, but the uh, yeah, so that that shape of of um, Bennu was actually predicted. Uh, Based on Earth-based observations before they launched there, so oh, right. it was. So that's been uh, um, that was figured out a while ago. The fact is, though, that when you put them side by side, you, you'd almost say they're the same. So it's almost like the physics of the way these things formed is telling us something that uh, out of the the two objects that we've been able to visit uh, of this general class. They're generally the same. Two of them look very similar. So if we looked at a third one, would we expect to see another one similar? Yeah. There's something about the way these things, the speed they're rotating, the, they're really just a rubble pile. They're just like a big pile of shingle all sort of holding together just by the weak force of gravity. Is it like they've got an ice cube container in the freezer out the back and they all come <laughs> out the same shape? Well, I mean, basically your ice cube container's physics at the end of the day. Oh, and, right, uh, yeah. the, you know, sort of orbital mechanics and, and other things like that. So... You know, once you've got a big pile of uh, rubble um, with very weak gravitational attraction, we can't replicate that on Earth. No. We can't make a situation where you have a tiny weak gravity force like that. We live on a planet that's got a big gravity force. Right, and it's kind on of the, hard to calculate. On these sort of things, you could stand on the surface and jump and you'd, leave, you'd launch into space and right. not come back. And right. You can't do that from Earth. Right. So, yeah, so all the rocks on Earth are really compressed by the force of gravity It's uh, and on the moon. You know, moon's a big, ob- huge object compared to these things. Yeah. Yeah. This is this object they're approaching 500 meters is the size of a very small lunar crater. Mm. Really, that's oh, yeah. small. Yeah, yeah, it's only 500 meters across. Oh, okay. I mean, you sort of pace that out on the ground. I mean, yeah. walking to the bus stop, probably mm. you cover 500 meters, and that's the size that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, the most detailed observations of material orbiting close to a black hole. Has anyone actually seen an event horizon yet, or well, is they effectively. They've, well, essentially, they have with this experiment. So this is a uh, an observation that's being done at European Southern Observatory in Chile where they've got uh, these four eight-metre-class telescopes all sitting together on a mountaintop. They're a real iconic picture, so a lot, a lot of people, listeners, will have seen that picture even if they didn't know quite what it was. Mm. But these four huge telescopes, each of them's 8.2 metres across the mirrors, uh, and when they're all designed to work together simultaneously pointing at the same thing, they work like a telescope that's about 130 metres across. It's called optical interferometry. So by combining the light, it's very difficult to do um, technically. Uh, it's only just been started to be done really in the last year or so with that instrument while I've been tuning it up. Um, but uh, And they can only do it for a relatively short time. So you can't spend all night looking at something. You only get some really short times where these four telescopes are really in sync and then they go out of sync and you have to sort of start again and so on. It's a really technically challenging thing to do, mm. but the advantage is you get to look for a very brief time with the power of a telescope that's like 130 metres across, which is bigger than any physical telescope you could build. So what they've been able to do is actually resolve details around the black hole in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, that's uh, it's about four million times the mass of the sun. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a massive black hole. And they've been able to resolve the motion of the particles whizzing around it. And in particular, they can see the uh, they can see the um, 
event, uh, what's going on close to the event horizon. Once mm. you, once a particle goes, gets too close to the black hole, it then drops into the black hole and vanishes from the universe for all practical purposes. But it's got a lot of cent- is it centripetal force as well to keep it out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, these things so are moving. Fast. Yeah, well, the particles. It's in actually the event, quite hard to get into a black hole. Well, the particles are spinning at uh, approaching the speed of light. The ones that they're measuring are travelling at about thirty percent of the speed of light. That's so that's uh, a lot. That's 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 moving. If, if you work out how fast that is, how many times those are whizzing around in their orbit per time, uh, per um, I mean, the, the equivalent would be the merging of two neutron stars that we've seen uh, before. Now those are much smaller objects than the this huge object at the middle of our galaxy. Right, and thirty percent of the speed of light, you've got serious relativistic oh, stuff it's happening. Totally. And so what the, we're seeing is, well, it is reality, but it would be. Uh, time slowed down, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, well, it's also, the, and I haven't seen any results from it yet, but there was an experiment done in the last year or two where they combined, they got big radio telescopes all over this Earth for a short time, all looking at the same object, the, the black hole in the centre of our galaxy, with these radio telescopes, and those, you know, you effectively became a radio telescope the size of the Earth, right. looking back at this object using the same trick of what's called interferometry, combining the re- light that's re- being received by all these instruments and as and synthesising in a computer what the image would look like. So that, I haven't seen the details, but that was supposed to to be able to resolve the um, the, the actual uh, event, event horizon, horizon of right. the black hole and improve it and and basically it's uh, it's something that hasn't been able to be proven with Einstein's theory not by direct observation Einstein's gravitational theory general relativity predicts that but it's not actually been directly observed now this new result from the VLT telescope in Chile uh, in the optical wavelengths, which is the, or less the wavelengths our eyes are sensitive mm. to, um, they, they've resolved it, and now it'll be interesting to see the, what the radio astronomers can produce. Okay. Um, on the, this black hole, is at the centre of the Milky Way? This is one of our biggies, right? That's right. That's is, it, is it just one biggie we've got in the middle? Yes, yes. We're, we're, some, some galaxies, we know that there are two like that orbiting each other. Mm. Um, the Milky Way is one at four million times the mass of the Sun. It's quite a modest size for the centre of a galaxy. Four million? Four million times the mass of the Sun. So four million suns all crushed into a tiny little space. Yeah. Uh, and that's... Uh, yeah, that's what this is. This is a, why they call it a supermassive black hole. So that's not hole. the result of one star dying, is it? No, no, no. This isn't. In fact, the it's still an open question. As why, and in fact, the other important thing is that all galaxies the size of the Milky Way have a supermassive black hole. The right. Milky Way's one's quite modest. There's one about, I think it's six times more massive in the middle of Andromeda Galaxy, our nearest neighbour, mm. our nearest big neighbour. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do know of supermassive black holes that run up into the 20 billion times, 20 billion times the mass of the Sun. No, so they don't. Those are For known. Goodness sake, really? Yes. Yeah, so you know these are. So the Milky Way's one on a galactic scale is pretty small, um, but we do know that these these monster ones out there as well. So they've got to be eating all sorts of stuff. Well, they, there isn't time in the universe for them to have been made. So the, the something about the way in which um, the universe came into existence seems to sort of uh, be the reason that these massive black holes occurred. At the moment, there's, we, astronomers can measure the rate at which stuff falls into them and we can look back in time to a time, say, a billion years after the Big Bang mm-hmm. and see these... 
mass, supermassive black holes in the middle of young galaxies, which are, and they're enormous by that time. Shouldn't they're be like, there. They're, you know, five or six billion times the mass of the sun. There isn't time for them to have formed. There must be some route that they form. Maybe something associated with the Big Bang itself produces seeds, and maybe these things uh, come out of the actual formation of the universe. Right. It comes into existence with massive black holes that then act as seeds for galaxies. It's, it's still, it's one of the unknowns in uh, cosmology and uh, in science. But hang on, there's this stuff that doesn't react with any contact, anything that we know of, like ordinary atoms and stuff, yeah. but it is affected by gravity. It does yeah. affect well, gravity. That, yeah, so maybe it's just swallowed a whole lot of well, dark matter. Well, it could be dark matter. I mean, but dark matter can't um, can't clump in a sufficient way. Oh. It, it's In order to get it to clump matter, with ordinary matter, you can get it to clump because it can, you can cool it down. It can radiate away energy, but dark matter can't do that. So dark matter can't really form into these massive black holes. It can it contains ordinary matter. It acts like a containment vessel, but it, it can't produce the same effect. So it's still a, a big question. And, mm. uh, you know, we're now satisfied the universe is actually sort of about 14 billion years old, but, um, you know, somehow we have to fit in this inconvenient truth that we have supermassive black holes and at the moment there's no satisfactory explanation of how they formed so early in the age of the universe. A practicality about observing the centre of the Milky Way, I'd assume it would be quite crowded. We can't even really see out the other end, can we? Is it hard to spot? Yeah, well, you can't see it in optical wavelengths, but oh. you can see it in, in some other wavelengths, like infrared and radio. So that, there's this huge amount of obscuring dust. So if we try to look at it with it's sort of like our, uh, sort of a optical telescope, uh-huh. that our eyes and the wavelength that our eyes can see, you wouldn't penetrate very far. Too much stuff. There's too much stuff in the way. There's a lot of dust and other material in the way. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and uh, but you know in the infrared you can actually see the stars spinning around in the vicinity and uh, the European space uh, the European Southern Observatory in Chile has been able to look at the motion they've been following the motions of about twenty or thirty stars mm-hmm. in the immediate vicinity and by measuring the motions of those stars over decades, so that's what's given them the accurate measure mm. of the mass of that object. We know that it's about four, I think it's about 4.4 million times the mass of the sun. All right. Uh, the Dark Sky Place of the Year Award, uh, the Araki McKenzie International Dark Sky Reserve, good for them. Yes. There aren't I mean, many of these on the planet, no, are there? No. And we've got two, haven't we? Stewart Island and this one and Great uh, Barrier? Uh, well, Great Barrier is a great a dark sky sanctuary, which is another level up. In oh. other words, there is no light on Barrier. It's a very dark place, as right. I discovered when I spent five days over there, <laughs> which was fantastic. But, yeah. uh, you know, even, you know, there's no street lights. Um, no streets? <laughs> well, there are, but, I mean, you know, the, how everyone's off the grid, basically. There is no reticulated power supply. Right. So that is, it was the first Dark sky. I think it was the first dark sky sanctuary status mm. place awarded, and there's a few other places. Stewart Island might be in line for that as well because mm-hmm. it's also very low low population and very little electric power. Off I'm the just grid. keeping in mind international listeners as well because we have a few. These are islands off the coast of New Zealand. That's right. So Stewart Island, the sort of southernmost large island uh, off the sort of south of the South Island, mm. and Great Barrier Island is just about 180, 90, 90 kilometres or so to the east of Auckland City. So mm. it's just outside of the light 
pollution of Auckland. And so out there, you might as well, you're out of it altogether. It's a fantastic place. So the International Dark Sky Association is, is a sort of a, um, an organisation that has created this uh, move towards establishment of dark sky reserves to protect against light pollution of cities and the and so on and so they the Ayaraki um, Mackenzie area became one of the early international dark sky reserves uh-huh. um, and uh, uh, it was basically also to keep Mount John Observatory from being too light polluted as t- late as the town of Lake Tekapo grew uh, into the future, uh, but uh, so and it's also driving astrotourism. So the people coming from all around the world. I'm stunned with the number of visitors that come to New Zealand, and that's their primary objective: to so go down to uh, the Iraqi Mackenzie. International Dark Sky Reserve, stay there, look at the night sky. I mean, it's high on the bucket list of a lot of people in Asia and Europe and North America, places that are already light polluted. They can't see it in their countries. Yeah. And they come down here and you down in the Mackenzie area, you have the spectacular natural scenery uh, coupled with a brilliantly dark <laughs> night sky. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's called astrotourism. Yeah. And Great Barrier Island should be able to attract some of those same sort of people. And by the economy of scale, there are lots of people that are prepared to travel a long way and fork out quite a bit to experience uh, uh, these know, things. Uh, it's, it's in terms of sort of a, on a bucket list scale, mm. people who have done, uh, they've done surveys in Asia and uh, it's uh, like top of the bucket list for a large fraction of people in Asia that have the funds to travel. Right. Um, and there's a that's an in rapidly increasing number. So it's a very important way to develop, you know, tourism in New Zealand. And these people come here. They go and do other things. They probably do a bit of skiing. They go looking at dolphins. And mm. they're probably people that are sort of a, have an affinity for the natural world. Uh, they, they're interested in nature, which, uh, you know, is really what we should be selling the country on. Yeah. So the dark sky we plus all do, the other this is an extra. terrain and everything else, yes. Mm. All right. Um, and also New Zealanders uh, listening over sees the code for when we attack Tasmania uh, is Boon 56. Boon 56. Hear that? We'll be attacking at dawn. Um, there's a really neat... I've, I've been binging on a YouTuber, an astronomy YouTuber. I think it's a maybe a grade above, you know, introductory level. Uh, it's PBS Space Time, and it's really, really, really good. Um, I've just been binging on so much stuff and learning tons, um, and it has rather an affable presenter. He seems... <laughs> When he presents, it's kind of like uh, a little bit stilted, but then he'll, he'll throw in a real cracking joke. <laughs> yeah, PBS is, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, um, it, it's, it can be a bit sort of dull, come across like that. When yeah. you watch their news items, everything's so oh, yeah. understated and Pious, everything else. actually. Well, it can be that too, but... <laughs> Uh, but it's uh, but you know the uh, the but the their science projects and uh, pr- stuff is pretty good and yeah. good on YouTube and other sort of sources like that. It's there's different ways to access PBS free uh, on yeah. the internet as well. Anyway, I've been enjoying it, so I thought I'd share. Um, and it is 
PBS, Space Time, Matt O something or other is the presenter. And here's a, of course, the people that watch these things are sticklers for accuracy. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> uh, and they like decimal places, do they? Oh, you get something wrong. They're swarming on you. <laughs> and a lovely little example from PBS Space Time. Here we go. Grant, thank you very much. Thanks, Graham. Lucas James noticed that during minute seven of the Black Hole Swarms episode, the plot only shows 12 blue dots, not the 13 that I claimed. Yeah, I noticed that, but decided to gloss over it, hoping no one else would notice. But who am I kidding? Of course you guys are going to pause the video and count dots. I mean, hell, I did. Peer review by YouTube. Anyway, as Gareth Dean points out, two of those dots were almost on top of each other, so we're all good. But thanks for keeping us honest, and we'll see you next week.